Amen. I think that's something we can all attest to being true, that Jesus' love is sweeter as the years go by. If you're honest about uh, where you are as a Christian today, as opposed to where you were when you first trusted in Christ, uh, there was initially probably an excitement as you recognized that you have a Savior, a God who loves you more than anything else, who came to the cross and took your burden, took your guilt, took all of your sin upon his shoulders and died in your place. But as the years have gone by and you've recognized just how good and gracious and loving God is, more than what he even did for you upon the cross, but what he's doing for you now, what he's promised for you in the future, and those words become absolutely true. Sweeter is his love as the years go by. This evening, we're going to be looking at a, another parable. I've, I've wanted to keep on this theme of looking at some of the parables of Christ uh, in, our evening in our evening services. So would you turn with me in your Bibles at this time to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 uh, this evening. We'll look at verses 1 through 15. Matthew 20 verses 1 through 15. And a sermon that I've titled Immeasurable Grace. Immeasurable Grace. Matthew 20. And in a moment we'll read verses 1 through 15. When you stop and you consider the grace of God, you quickly find that it is incredibly immeasurable. There is no way to measure it. There is no way to define and box it in and contain it in any way when you truly get a glimpse of the grace of God. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor, meaning that it is undeserved. It is not something that any of us can ever earn. So to say that God is Far greater to us than what we deserve is truly an understatement. Not one single person can ever earn God's grace, and not one person can ever boast that he deserves God's grace. Grace is not given to any of us because we are good. It is not given to us because we will one day be good. It is not given because God is pleased with everything that we've done for him as a body of work, even individually or collectively. This would not make it grace if it were something that we earned or that we achieved and then God rewarded us with it. For grace, again, is unmerited favor. It, by definition, cannot be earned. So grace is not a payment for services rendered, nor is it a reward for your good behavior. Grace is God's gift given to those who believe on him. And at times we may scratch our heads wondering, why? Why God, why has he given his grace to people that we think might be unworthy? But the truth of the matter is, is that there is not a single person that is ever worthy of receiving God's grace. The devil tries to get us into this game where we compare one person to the next, one Christian to the next. And we, we look at one person, we say, well, well, I can understand why God showed grace to this person, but why him? I've seen this man's life, and there's no reason why God should have ever shown him grace. He's not worthy of any favor from God. And the devil gets us doubting. He gets us doubting and questioning things by insisting that even we're not worthy of God's grace. And the truth is, he's right. He's right. We're not worthy of God's grace. But whether you've been saved for five years or for 50 years, you will always be unworthy of God's grace. And God still loves us and still gives us his grace. Therefore, our unworthiness can never be a barrier to receive God's grace because me being worthy was never a qualification to receive God's grace. Our qualification to receive God's grace is our lack of qualification. That is why it is a wonder that anyone is ever saved. On the basis of worthiness, 
not one single person will ever be saved. That is specifically why God has offered us grace. He has given us something that we don't deserve. Because he knows his standard of perfection will never be met, not by anyone. And not one single soul shall ever earn entrance into heaven through meeting God's qualifications of perfection. And the more you think about God's grace, the more it just doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to be fair. Nearly everything that we receive here on earth is received on the basis of a qualification that we have to meet. We have this built-in mindset that tells us that everything we, we should receive would be because we've met the qualifications to receive it. And when we see people receiving something so great who don't appear to be meeting the set qualifications, we begin to scratch our heads and wonder what went wrong. Why did they get something that clearly they did not deserve? And the grace of God is such that everyone who receives it not only doesn't deserve it, but we deserve the opposite. The only thing that sinners deserve, which every one of us are, is eternal damnation. But to be the recipients of God's eternal blessings in heaven is what we get when we believe on Christ. And that makes no sense at all. It makes no sense at all. It is completely unfair. But it's unfair in our favor. How could God be so good to us? What have we done to warrant God showing us favor? Did he look down on, on, on earth and look upon human beings and say, you know what, Brother Paul, that man deserves my grace. Did he look down upon any of us and say, he deserves for me to show him favor? No. Not a single person, not even the collective body of work from every human being that has ever lived can God say, you know what, collectively, individually, no, but collectively, they're just almost there. No, no, not one of us. And so it makes you wonder, how? How could God love us so much? How would God ever consider offering us something that none of us ever deserved? In fact, we deserve the exact opposite. How could he do this? Only God knows. Only God knows. For the most part, we can accept that premise. We don't understand it. We don't understand the mind of God. Isaiah tells us that, you know, who can understand the mind of God? So we just accept that premise to be true. That God will show love to whomever he will show love to. He will show mercy and grace to whoever he decides to show mercy and grace to. That he can do it. And yet we still question it at times. Even though we kind of accept it to be true, we still question it at times. Especially when we look upon someone who we think is unworthy. It's not so much about ourselves, but how could God love someone else so much? When we think about ourselves being the objects of God's love, some of us are so proud and so arrogant and think, well, it makes sense that God would love me, naturally. But my neighbor? I mean, have you seen the things that he does? We think that other people are undeserving of God's love. Now, have you ever really stopped and considered the drastic difference between Judas Iscariot and the thief on the cross. Judas was a close disciple of Christ for about three years. He gave three years of his life to the best, the most intensive religious instruction and training that anyone could ever receive because he was literally in that inner circle of 12 around Christ. And yet Judas is condemned to an eternity in hell. And on the other hand, you have the thief on the cross who was 
as much as we know, a lifelong criminal who was still mocking everything that was holy while he was being put to death for his crimes, but he is rejoicing forevermore in the presence of God. That doesn't make sense at all, does it? The difference between these two couldn't be more drastic. Neither can their eternal destinations be any more shocking. In Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we're told that Judas was given power to be a minister of Christ and to preach the kingdom of God, to preach the gospel. It says here in Luke 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then he called his twelve disciples together, Judas would have been among them. And he gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. In every way, Judas appeared to be the model disciple. So much so, that even when Jesus said that one of the twelve would betray him, no one pointed the finger at Judas and said, it's definitely going to be that guy. Master, I told you from the beginning that one of us should be cut, and I told you it should have been Judas. Every step of the way, he has lied. Every step of the way, he has deceived. He's been manipulating. He's been scheming. I can just see it in his eyes. I know he's up to something, and everyone else is going to tell you he's bad news. He's the traitor. No one did that. Nothing of the sort was mentioned. In fact, none of the disciples had a clue who it would be. They're all asking, is it me? Is it I? Who is it? No one considered that Judas would be the one. And I could make the argument, and I'm sure we all could, that Judas was among the most trusted of that group based on the fact that he was the treasurer of that group. Evidently, the disciples saw nothing in him that would ever cause them to question his character, his morals, or his integrity, much less think of him as being diabolical. But this is the one who would end up betraying Christ, take his own life, and would enter into eternal damnation riddled with horrific guilt. And when you consider the thief on the cross, you have a man who was most likely a career criminal, a serious malefactor that he was sentenced to die in this most horrific way. It was the slowest and most painful death known to man at the time. And in Matthew 27 and verse 38, he's referred to as a thief which is the Greek word used to describe those who would lie in wait to attack weary travelers on the road. So this was all premeditated. He was really taking advantage of people. And, you know, the, the, we have the story of the Good Samaritan. Well, the thief would have been the guy who beat up the man who allowed the Good Samaritan to come and to help. This is the idea when the word thief is used in Matthew 27, 38. This man he was being crucified with another thief on the other side of Christ who many believe that these two were originally set to be crucified along with Barabbas who was cast into prison for, the Bible says, sedition and for murder. So this thief was most likely part of a cutthroat gang who stole through violence and just lived by their own laws. He was clearly a ruthless, mean-spirited, and hostile man, as in the early hours of the crucifixion, both he and his cohort, the other man on the cross, joined in the taunting and the ridiculing of Jesus. This is in the early hours while they were hanging upon the cross. In Matthew 27, verse 39 and verse 44, listen to what it says. It says, and they, they that passed by reviled him. So the context here, they're, they're all upon the cross, all three of them, but they're all mocking, all those that are passing by are mocking Christ. It says, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. And notice what it says later. It says, the thieves also, both of them, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. 
But as the one thief watched Jesus slowly and silently die, the one who was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, as Isaiah tells us, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. This one thief had a remarkable change of heart. He started with joining everyone else who was ridiculing and mocking Jesus as he's even on the cross dying a death that he deserves. He's looking to Jesus and he's joining in the mocking with everyone else who is not being crucified. But he undergoes a remarkable change of heart. The Bible describes the scene for us in Luke 23, verses 39 to 43. It says, And one of the male factors which, hanged, which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. So that was the other one. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Earlier, he was joining the crowd and mocking and ridiculing Jesus. But as he hung there upon that cross, and his dying moments, he recognized something different about this man who was there beside him. And what a change of heart. This thief had done nothing to earn heaven. Nothing at all. In fact, he readily admits that he fully deserved the punishment that he was receiving along with his cohort on the other side of Christ, and yet Christ told him that he would be with him in heaven that day. If it is possible for Christ to forgive such a person in the dying moments of their life, what has been a wretched life, full of sin, shouldn't it also be true that Christ would also cancel out the sin of the person based on the good works that he's done for the last three years that he followed Christ? Right? Shouldn't it make sense? That if he's going to spare someone in the dying moments of his life, a career criminal, a man who made his life violently stealing from others, shouldn't God also... Cancel out the debt and the sin of Judas who served by him for three years. Doesn't that make sense that he would do the same? Judas was the type of person who kept score on such matters. In fact, on one occasion he argued that Mary, who anointed the feet of Jesus with such a costly ointment, should ha shouldn't have done that. And the ointment should have been sold and the money should have been used to help other people. Judas protested in John 12, verse 5. He says, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Now, it's interesting. It's interesting that Judas knew the exact value of that ointment, which was equivalent to one year's wages. And the reason was because Judas was the type of person who was constantly evaluating the value of everything and whether or not things were fair. How could it be fair that this expensive ointment be used to anoint the feet of Jesus when it could be used to, it could be sold and the money could be given to the poor? How is it fair that we're wasting all of it here when this could feed so many people for a year? How could it be fair? These types of people who devote themselves to religion often end up resenting God when he shows grace to people that they feel don't deserve it. How is it fair that things worked out for this person when there are plenty of other people who are more deserving of receiving such support? 
These people will determine there are some who are not worthy of God's favor and there are some who are worthy of God's favor and thus they'll resent God when God shows favor to the group that they deem are unworthy. And this is a big problem that we run into because even as believers, we can find ourselves playing this comparison game, thinking that God is somehow under obligation to offer grace and favor to people who we deem worthy to the point that we talk about such grace and favor of God as if it is a right that some people have earned while completely ignoring the fact that man's only right is to be punished for his sin eternally. People who protest that God is being unfair or that God is being unjust when he shows grace to those who are least deserving just don't understand the principle of God's grace. Grace, again, would cease to be grace if it was deserved. The very nature of grace, again, insists that it is undeserved. If it were not the grace for the grace of God, every single person would be immediately killed. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. The very moment you sinned, you'd be guilty of death. But even earlier than that, the Bible makes it clear that we were born with a sin nature, so we're born guilty. Therefore, if God was not gracious, there would be no human race. There would be no human race. If God were fair, every single one of us would be dead before we ever had a chance of living. You see, the truth is that we don't want God to be fair. We desperately want God to be merciful and to be graceful. So whether you're looking at the thief on the cross or Judas or any other person who has ever lived or any other person who will ever live, God is merciful and graceful to those who do not deserve it. God can be merciful and graceful to a career criminal in his dying moments while condemning a disciple with a track record of being religious. So no matter how we look at it, heaven is not a reward for our good works, neither is it a prize for the people that deserve it. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, it tells us, it says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. To him that worketh not, the Bible says, it's not going to be based on your good works. It's, quite frankly, we have no good works. But it's not going to be on the body of work that you're able to do. But... On those who believe on Jesus Christ, his faith is counted for righteousness. God basically justifies the ungodly. He shows grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it. It is this principle, this principle that God justifies the ungodly, that God shows grace to those who don't deserve it, that is illustrated in our parable here this evening. So your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 20. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 15. That was a really long introduction. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 15. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. 
So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil, because I am good? Now, just as we have seen with the previous parables that we've looked at, Jesus is teaching a much deeper truth than what's here on the surface. This parable has nothing to do with labor laws. It has nothing to do with minimum wage. It has nothing to do with equity in our business dealings or anything of that sort. Jesus is using this parable to describe how grace works in the, in the sphere of where God works. So let's start, first of all, by considering the details of the parable. So consider the details of the parable. Uh, verse 1 begins by introducing us to this householder, this man who is in charge. And we see that based on several verses. Verse 1 tells us that he is the householder. Verse 8 tells us uh, that he is, he is the one that is, that, is giving, uh, that is giving orders. Verse 15 he is the one who has all things. Look at these three verses really quick. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that has an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. Verse 8 says, So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And then verse 15, same person, Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? So he's, he's the landlord. He's the householder. He's the, the Lord of the vineyard. All the same, same, describing the same person. This is the man who's in charge based on what we see in these three verses. Verse 8 refers to him as the Lord of the vineyard, and evidently it is a large enough vineyard based on the number of workers needed to help with the harvest. So clearly, this householder is a man of great wealth and a man of great influence. And as we've previously mentioned regarding the audience to whom Jesus spoke, these people would have been very familiar with the, the, the people that Jesus is speaking to, would have been very familiar with the with the setting that Jesus describes here in this parable. It was well understood that the harvest time could get a little hectic, could get a little chaotic as the crop had to be harvested before the rains came, thus forcing the landowners, the householders, to seek extra laborers to help during that time. And so the marketplace that's described here in verse number one, where, uh, where the householder goes, uh, he's, or verse number three, rather, where the householder goes, the marketplace is the place where it's a public place that workers were to gather in, workers who were not full-time employees, but workers who, who needed extra money, workers who didn't have a particular set of skills but could work and could be useful, they would all gather in this public place known as the marketplace with the hopes that overworked landowners, specifically around this time of the year, would seek them out and hire them for day work. And verse 1 tells us that the householder went out to the marketplace early, most likely prior to 6 a.m., because the workday usually started around 6 a.m., and this is when the 12-hour day started. So it was commonly understood that the day laborers who would start off in the marketplace, these day laborers would receive lower wages than the standard pay for a full-time employee. But day laborers were often those people, again, who didn't have the particular set of skills that would make them a full-time employee. And they were happy enough to get the work. 
What we see about the householder in this parable is that he was unusually generous to these day laborers because the amount that he offered to pay them was equal to that of a full-time skilled employee. He offers to pay him a penny a day, verse number two says, and they're more than thrilled because they showed up there that morning thinking, well, whatever we get paid is going to be great because I need something to be able to bring home at the end of the day. And a penny a day was what a full-time employee makes, so they're thinking, well, I'm probably going to make a fraction of that. And Jesus shows up, well, not Jesus, uh, but the, the householder shows up and he says, all right, I'm going to pay you all a penny a day to work for me all day. <laughs> Done. Where do we need to go? So they go on their way and they begin to, to go to work. And so, again, they were typically used to receiving a fraction of what this householder agreed to pay them. So you can imagine that they're ecstatic about this offer, what they're going to be making this day. And three hours into the workday, the householder returns to the marketplace to hire more laborers. Verse 3 seems to indicate that it wasn't necessarily that he needed extra help, but more that he felt compassion for some of the workers who were left sitting idle there at the marketplace, and he knew he could help them. Look again what it says in verse number 3. It says, And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So these individuals that are there in the marketplace there in verse number three are not just standing around because they didn't want to work. They were at the marketplace hoping to find work, but no one had hired them at this point in the day. And if you notice in verse number four, when the householder hires them, there's no negotiation of wage this time. Look at what it says in verse number four. And he said unto them, go ye also into the vineyard and whatsoever is right, I will give you. And they went their way. So this householder must have had a reputation for being an honest man, and thus they take him at his word. He doesn't tell them, I'm going to pay you a penny a day. He doesn't tell them, listen, I'm not going to pay you anything today. Nothing. Nothing is said. He just says, whatever is right, I will give you. And again, there must be a reputation that this householder has earned to the point where these day laborers say, you know what? This man is good for his word. I know he's going to take care of us. Let's go. We'll do the work. And so they go, even though the terms are rather vague as to what they're going to be paid. And keep in mind that these workers had been waiting in the marketplace for at least three hours. They probably got there before 6 a.m., before the 12-hour work they started. They're sitting around with nothing to do. No one's hired them yet. So they just want to be paid. They're looking for anything. So really, it probably didn't matter how much the householder said he was going to pay them. As long as they were going to be hired, they were going to take the job. They only made money if they worked. And the more that time passed, the less opportunity to make money. So they took whatever opportunity was given to them. And verse 5 goes on to tell us that the householder repeated this trip to the marketplace two more times in three-hour increments, hiring workers each time. Notice what it says in verse 5. It says, again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did likewise. So when he gets to verse number 6, we find that the workday is nearly over. Only one hour left. And the householder returns to the marketplace one final time to hire more workers. Look at verse number six. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? Imagine what it was like for these workers who are found in verse number six. They had been left there at the marketplace all day. They arrived early that morning hoping to find work, to earn some money, to be able to take home, feed their families, do whatever needed to get done, pay some bills. But while other workers were hired and everyone else seems to be going, they're left waiting. With each passing hour, they knew that the opportunity to make really any money in the day was now fading very quickly, but they persisted in the hopes of finding some work 
even if it was only going to be a few hours worth of work. And then with one hour left in the workday, and probably some people have gone home by this point thinking, well, there's not going to be any work for me today. There's still a small group that are there with one hour left in the workday. The householder shows up and he finds this group of workers, most likely discouraged, but they refused to give up. Still hoping with one hour left in the day that someone's going to come by and hire them to do something. And verse 7 shows us that they were not still there because they were lazy, but just because no one had hired them yet. When they're asked in verse number 6, why stand you here all the day idle? Verse 7 says, they say unto him, because no man hath hired us. Why are you here? We've been waiting all day. We want to work, but no one's hired us. Once again, the householder hires this group of workers with the vague terms that everyone after the first group of workers was given when they were hired. Verse number seven goes on to say, it says, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. Verse eight tells us that this householder was a man of his word. And when the workday was over, he called all the workers together to pay them their wages. Notice what it says in verse number eight. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers, give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. Now, as Jesus is teaching this parable, he makes a point to mention the order in which these laborers were paid. This is incredibly important, and we'll see why shortly. But those at the front of the line were the ones who had only worked one hour. They'd only worked one hour. This is the last group of people that were hired. They'd only been there one hour, and those at the back of the line had been there all day, 12 hours, working in the heat of the sun. They'd been working and laboring. But as the steward began to distribute wages to all of the workers, one by one, forming a single file line, everyone's receiving the same amount. Those who worked just one hour received a full day's wage rate, again, at the rate of a full-time employee who's skilled. Not an unskilled worker who these individuals are. They're receiving full-time employee wages, and they've worked one hour. Can you imagine how thrilled the workers must have been at the end of the line who had worked all day as they're seeing all this happen? When they arrived at the marketplace that morning, they knew that even if they were hired right away, this is the, this is the last group, they knew that if they were hired right away, they were never going to be making a full-time rate because that just wasn't done. But not only do they receive a full-time rate, this group that worked one hour, they receive it without even having working the entire day. Imagine if you're at the back of the line there. Put yourself in the shoes of the people that are there. You're in the back of the line. You're, you've been there all day. You are beat. You are exhausted. Sweat is just pouring from you. And you're watching what's happening. You can see how much money is being passed out to everyone who's just got there. Literally, they're not even sweaty yet because they've only worked one hour. And they're getting what you've been promised, and they've only been there one hour. You're probably thrilled at the thought of receiving full-time wages as an unskilled laborer before, but now you're thinking, hey, if these folks are getting paid the full rate for only working one hour, I must be getting paid 12 times that, right? Because that would be fair. This is fantastic. I'm texting my wife right now. We're having steak tonight. But then notice what happens in verse number 10 through 12. But when the first came, so this is the group that's been there 12 hours, they suppose that they should have received more, right? Because that would be fair. How is it fair that the people that have been there one hour get the same rate that they do? 
They should have received more. And, the, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received, and again, this is more than what they should have received. And when they had received it, verse 11, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. Can you just feel the tension and the frustration in these workers that have been there 12 hours? Are you kidding me right now? You're going to pay us the same rate as these folks who just showed up 10 minutes ago? This is ridiculous. How is this fair? They're upset. They're furious. We should be getting paid more. But look back at what these laborers agreed to back in verse number two. It says, And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. What does he pay them at the end of the day? What they agreed to, a penny a day, which again, was the full-time going rate for a skilled laborer, which they were not. They should have gotten a fraction of this. They're getting above and beyond what they would have ever dreamed of, and now they're furious about it because someone else got the same rate that they did who, in their mind, did not deserve it. We did so much more work than them, we should get paid more. Not only was that a fair wage that they received, it was an incredibly generous wage that they agreed to. And back in verse number two, they agreed to it happily. But now they're upset with the householder as we see them murmur against the man in verse number 11. It says, when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house. Twelve hours ago, they thought that he was one of the most generous people on the face of the planet. He is still paying them more than what they would have ever made going to work for someone else. But now they're frustrated with him. And notice how the householder responds in verses 13 through 15. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the householder, you know what he does? He calls out the jealousy of those who are complaining. The householder had not dealt with anyone unfairly. He had paid the first crew exactly what was agreed upon and was paying more than what they reasonably, reasonably expected. So what changed? What changed? Why are they now upset? Well, they're upset because they felt that other groups unworthily were paid more than what they deserved and they were envious of the good fortune of others. They couldn't stand the thought that others would be com compensated as much as they were without working as hard as they had worked. Their gratitude at the beginning of the workday changed into a bitter resentment at the end of the workday. The 11th hour workers, they're thrilled. They're on top of the world because they understood better than anyone how graciously they had been treated. So these are the details of the parable. I'm going to move very quickly here. Notice second, the proverb. The proverb. Look at the last verse in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, because this verse actually introduces the parable that we're looking at here this evening. I know we have chapter divisions, but that doesn't always signal the end of a thought or the end of a story. Look at what it says at the end of math, or in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30. It says, But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And now notice how this proverb is repeated in verse 16 of chapter 20. So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. And this same concept is actually, actually seen right in the middle of the parable itself. Look at verse number 8, because it's not exactly the same words, but it's the same idea. 
says, so when the evening was, evening was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, call the laborers and give them their hire. Notice what it says, beginning from the last unto the first. So what do these verses mean? Well, what these verses mean is that if we're racing, the only way for the last to be first and the first to be last, now picture this with me. If we're, if we're all running in a race and there's a finish line ahead of us, the only way that the last are going to be first and the first are going to be last is if we all finish at the same time, right? There's no other way to rationalize this. We all have to finish at the same time. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching here. Those laborers that were hired at the beginning of the day were paid the same as those who were hired at the end of the day. Every single one of them, from the first to the last, all received the full benefit of the householder's generosity, all in equal shares. So what's the spiritual lesson in all of this? Thank you for asking. Uh, point number three. Notice the point of the parable. The point of the parable. Jesus' point is actually very simple and very straightforward. Since every single sinner is completely unworthy of God's favor and the riches of God's grace are absolutely immeasurable, all believers receive an infinite and an eternal share of God's mercy, grace, and kindness, even though none of us deserve it. The thief on the cross who believed on Jesus in his dying moments entered God's presence where he has been enjoying everlasting joys ever since, just the same as the Apostle Peter, just the same as the Apostle James and John who literally gave their lives in service to the Savior. How is that fair, right? If we're playing this comparison game and we're going off of it based on who deserves it, career criminal or an Apostle of Christ? How is it that these two have an equal share in the kingdom of God? The grace of God is just this way. The householder in this parable represents God. The vineyard is the kingdom, which is the, the, really the sphere of God's rule. The laborers represent believers, those who come into the service of the king. The day of work represents their lifetime. The evening is eternity. The steward that is seen here giving out the money represents Christ, who has been given all authority to judge the world, and a penny a day represents the grace of God. And let me just clarify that the pay is not something that the workers have earned, since it is not a wage given for a fair exchange of their labor. This wage, again, is way above and beyond what they would have ever earned on their own. Just uh, So th this is the point. Every genuine believer receives the full benefits of God's immeasurable grace, just like everyone else in God's kingdom. Every genuine believer, so whether it is a deathbed confession or whether the person's been saved for 95 years, all who enter into God's kingdom receive the same amount of God's grace, which is all of it. All of it. Your home in heaven is not a timeshare where God allows you to occupy for a period of time based on how good your works were here on earth. The blessings of God's grace are not passed out based on your own personal achievement. Salvation is not granted on the basis of, of is not granted on the basis of how good we are, neither is it withheld from us if we have sinned far too long or too badly. Everyone who enters God's kingdom receives the full extent of God's immeasurable grace, regardless if they were saved with their dying breath or if they were saved for 95 years. When this earthly life is over, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, however your life comes to an end here, you will join him in heaven. It is as simple as that. 
It doesn't matter if you spent your entire life following Christ or if you trusted in him on your deathbed like the thief on the cross. Heaven is not a reward for abundant service or even for hard work. Some believers still struggle with this because it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair that God would be gracious to the person who believes on him on his deathbed as he would with you who lived for Christ your entire life. How is it fair that we have equal footing when we get to heaven, when this man got into heaven by the skin of his teeth and I've been working and serving Christ my entire life? Why are we standing on equal footing when we get to heaven? If it seems unfair, just remember that you're still receiving far more from God than what you ever deserved. The good news that we have to focus on is the fact that we don't have to earn our way into heaven and praise the Lord for that. Salvation is entirely the working of God and Jesus Christ. Fourth, I want to just quickly point out several principles, several principles that we see here. First of all, again, very clear, very basic. Salvation is never earned. Salvation is never earned. The grace of God is a gift, and a gift is never earned. A gift is given purely according to the will of the one doing the giving. And salvation is a gift that only God can give. It is never earned. Second, God gives the same amount of grace to all who believe on Jesus. God gives the same amount of grace to all who believe on Jesus. It doesn't matter how good you are in the eyes of the world. It doesn't matter how much skill you have. It doesn't matter how much wealth you've accumulated. It doesn't matter how many degrees you've earned. Every single one of us are completely undeserving of God's grace and are only deserving of suffering eternally in the lake of fire. Therefore, when God gives us his grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, he doesn't dole out his grace in proportion to how much work we've done for him. He doesn't say, all right, you know, this person worked a little bit longer for me in his lifetime, so I'm going to give him a little bit more of my grace, and for this person, not so much because he just got saved on his dying breath. So not as much grace, but, you know, maybe a little bit here and there and much more for this person. No. He gives the same amount of grace to all who believe on him. Therefore, when God gives us his grace, he doesn't give you more grace because you've been a believer longer than the person sitting next to you in church. He doesn't give you more grace because you've read the Bible more than the person sitting next to you in church. He doesn't give you more grace because of any other reason, because you can pray more eloquently than anyone else you've come in contact, contact with. God doesn't give any believer what we deserve, thankfully. He doesn't give us some of heaven and tell the rest of us, listen, you barely made it here. So, what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to give you access to the Welcome Center. But the rest of heaven is off limits to you. But listen, if you listen really closely, far off in the distance, you can hear all the praise and worshiping going on at the throne of God. Just be happy you're here. He doesn't do that. That's not how it works. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're not limited. You're not boxed into a small part of heaven. You get all of it. You get all of it. Now, there will be rewards that the Bible very clearly talks about that believers will be able to earn when we're in heaven. But even those rewards that we get, the moment we get them, we're throwing them at the Savior's feet because we recognize he's the one who's worthy of all praise. But that's not even what this parable is talking about. Jesus gives this specific parable here in Matthew 20 to teach about the eternal blessings of the immeasurable grace of God that is offered to every single believer. And as we see in this parable, it is God who initiates the call for every believer as he's the one, as the householder, who goes to the marketplace and hires the laborers. The householder is the one who brought every one of them into his vineyard, just as it is God who is the one who brings every believer into his kingdom. And, and, and third, salvation is never earned. God gives the same amount of grace to all who believe on Jesus. And third, God calls those who know they are sinners, not those who think they are self-sufficient. 
God calls those who know they are sinners, not those who think that they are self-sufficient. Every one of the workers here in this story knew they were unskilled. That's why they were at the marketplace. If they knew they were skilled, they would have found a full-time job somewhere else, paying them a much higher wage than they ever would have dreamed of making at the marketplace. They knew they were not self-sufficient. That's why they were in the marketplace in the first place. They all knew they weren't deserving of the full-time pay because they all lacked the training, they all lacked experience, they all lacked certain skills to receive the full-time wages. Those workers knew that in order to receive any sort of wages, they would need someone to have compassion on them because they couldn't do things for themselves. God saves those who recognizes their inability to save themselves, sinners who recognize their need for a Savior. He doesn't say to those who cry out to him on their deathbed, sorry, you know what, you should have done this years ago. I'm not going to accept this at this time. He doesn't say that. As long as there's life and breath within a person, there is still hope for that person to be saved. And fourth, God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. The householder promised the first group a very specific wage, a penny a day, and he stayed true to that word. The householder kept his word to each of the workers that he hired there that day, and we can be sure that God always keeps his promises with us as well. And fifth, God always gives us more than we deserve. God gives us more than we deserve. All that we honestly deserve is eternal damnation. But God hasn't given believers what we deserve. God gives us blessings every day, not to mention the promise of eternal blessings in heaven as well. The grace of God is truly, truly immeasurable. And if you haven't received it, if you have received it, you've received all of it. And if you have, you have every reason to rejoice every day of your life. While you may never figure out how it is that God could love you so much, just continue to rejoice in him every day for the grace that he has given you here on earth until you're rejoicing forevermore in the presence of him in heaven one day. Would you bow with me in prayer at this time? Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for this lesson here from Matthew 20. Lord, I feel like we've just began to touch this, scratch the surface of all the content here, Lord, and I feel like we've just zipped through so much. I pray that you would help us to understand just what we've talked about here this evening, Lord, that your grace is truly immeasurable. Lord, to be a recipient of your grace is just a wonder to all of us. How could, we, how could we ever be the object of your love? Lord, there is nothing good in us that you would ever be drawn to us. Lord, we know that we were certainly created in your, in your image, but Lord, we have done everything we can seemingly to mar that image, to stain, Lord, what you have done and what you have made so perfectly and so beautifully. Forgive us, Lord, for our foolish actions. Forgive us for all of our sinful decisions and help us, Lord, to be those who live faithfully according to your word, Lord, those who represent Christ to the absolute fullest. Help us, Lord, to learn about the grace of God that has been imparted to us, and Lord, let us live every day rejoicing in the fact that we have an immeasurable amount of grace that has been offered to us. Let us focus on you, not the worthiness of ourselves or others around us, but on you and the immeasurable grace that you show us every single day. In Christ's name we pray, amen.